Hello and welcome to the Lauren Sport Podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Lauren Sport. The Lauren Sport Podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as provide some insight into some of the personalities who work behind the scenes in the sports world to help organise, run and maintain sport, the organisations that run sport and create a sustainable sporting environment. On today's show, our guest is Izzy Kanwath, who is the Communication Director for the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation and a trustee of Safe MMA. I'll let Izzy go into the details of what she does and what Safe MMA do in particular. However, if you do like the podcast, if you do like what Safe MMA are doing, I would encourage you to push it out on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or any other platform that you'd like and just tell people about it. I think they're doing some fantastic work. I hope you think the same. Other than that, I hope you enjoy the show. We were first introduced by a friend, uh, Ben Sigler. Yes. Who's written for us before on the regulation of MMA. So yes. very relevant for today's topic. And he first of all said to me, he flagged to me about the Safe MMA project. Yes. And this was something like two, three years ago, maybe, maybe even longer. I think it must have been 2012, 13. Oh, wow. It was some time ago. And that was an e-introduction, I think. Um, and he was writing an article, as you say, about, I think, Safe MMA or the regulation of mixed martial arts for law and sport. Yeah. And, and then fast forward to a few months ago, we were reintroduced by another friend, uh, Michelle Vroken. Yes. And... Um, uh, she, she's involved with the International Mixed Martial Arts, Mixed Martial Arts Federation from a, from a regulatory standpoint, from the medical side and anti-doping in particular, I know. Yes, she's um, our anti-doping consultant, but also, you know, as you say, just um, a, a really excellent advisor in all those areas. She's got so much expertise to bring to the table, but she oversees our anti-doping programme. I need to get on, just remind me now, I need to get onto the podcast because <laughs> she's got a great career. So, um, But I'm sure many of you would have, would have already heard, I've heard Michelle speak on numerous occasions at various sports or events or read some of her articles. I know she writes for The Guardian on occasions and, and guest writes and uh, there's lots of stuff around that. Um, and we were sitting there, I think it was at the Sports Journalist, it was the Sports Journalist Awards and we were talking about Safe and May and I was just uh, really impressed uh, with the project. Hadn't you know, flash back to the initial introduction mm-hmm. and I thought it'd be worth um, given that you've now acquired charitable status yes. it'd be worth in finding out about Safe MMA what it does I think there's a lot of misconceptions around mixed martial arts particularly in the UK but also internationally Absolutely. so can you describe the Safe MMA project and or organisation now mm-hmm. and uh, the work that you do how it operates um, well, Safe MMA um, was founded um, voluntarily by um, a group of doctors at the Centre of Health and Human Performance in London and um, key promoters in the UK at the time was Cage Warriors, Bama, and in the early days, um, Cage Rage was on board. And it was about setting a basic um, standard of medical safety for MMA competitors because nothing existed in the UK and it's still not regulated, the sport's still not recognised. And there was a real concern from um, kind of all parties that there could be a serious injury or, or even a death. 
Um, Mark Goddard, the um, UFC referee, he's kind of famous for his work in, in terms of trying to improve um, regulation and officiating. He, he was um, involved in the founding, as was Rosie Sexton. And it was just putting um, heads together and saying, OK, so what's the standard that the promoters can enforce on their shows? So basic medical provision and what kind of medical clearance process should athletes go through in order to compete on those shows? And I think critically, it was about setting a unified standard. So if, if somebody fights on one show, then the suspension recommendations or medical clearance recommendations are then respected and adhered to on other shows as well. And then you've got a central confidential um, database for that medical information. So it's the beginning of trying to set kind of some kind of standard. It's interesting because... The, one of the challenges in like, having been involved in Thai boxing in the early day, like mm-hmm. year, 20 years ago now, you know, one of the problems with, with these type of promotions and the same in boxing or now white collar boxing and others mm-hmm. is trying to get parties around a table to agree any standard yeah. is really difficult because everyone's quite, um, not everyone, but often people can be quite um, protectionist in their approach because they've invested time in building, mm-hmm. particularly the way the remuneration works in these sports, yeah. to build a promotion, to sell a promotion. So... It seems like that was quite a, a good move to have someone who wasn't a promoter uh, uh, initially, who had the referee, and to set up an organisation that wasn't that worked multi-party as such. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just acquired or a, prop- a proprietary property of Bama or one of the other organisations. Do you think that was part of the success and adoption of it? I think I think so. It, it was looking at kind of who are the um, key influencers in, in, in the UK and, and who's actually got the power to actually enforce any type of standard. And, and literally it was the promoters, and at the time those three were the biggest, and it was Mark Goddard's brainwave, look, we need to speak to them first, we need to get these guys in the room. And, and there's, there's so much kind of rivalry, um, well, there was so much rivalry between them that there's actually nobody ever really expected we'd get the three around a table and to agree to anything, but we got them in a room and we had a number of meetings over time. And, and, and obviously there's a lot of common ground, but it's um, still very, very fragmented in the UK. It's had far more success over in Ireland, um, where now um, I'd say there's almost kind of 100% compliance over there. It's a different, um, different landscape and there's been kind of a different history to that one. So, so from a, uh, a practical perspective, this isn't just about giving the promoters um, essentially um, cover to, mm. to, 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 to run their commercial operations. This is, um, you know, and security from their part, as in almost like a box ticking exercise. This mm. is also, you know, um, more, more important than that. It's about, you know, protecting the athlete, the individual athlete. And I think there's been some good examples maybe you can share with us about how that, that process has worked in terms of on, a, on an actual promotional basis where a fire maybe has had an injury or um, mm-hmm. had some issue that maybe wouldn't have been flagged if it hadn't been for the system. Yeah, I, mean, I think, think there's been quite a few. And I think um, sort of, um, you know, come to your first point, um, it, it is athlete-centred, that athletes do pay um, a nominal, nominal membership fee and they're, they're essentially the members or the um, clients that Safeman may provide service to. And they have unlimited um, medical advice as a part of that. So uh, I think what's really important is that they get independent medical advice about their status. And, and there's a lot of, kind of communication that can go on if, if, a, if a complex case comes up between the Safeman Medical Committee 
um, the ringside doctor who, who is paid by the promoter, um, perhaps their GP, there might be other specialists that we have to refer to. So, um, I mean, there's one incident where uh, a fighter had, um, he was on warfarin for a, um, to um, kind of thin his blood for a heart condition. So if he'd been cut, then his blood would clot in the same way and that could be a risk. So then there was a kind of question, well, can he still fight? And what is the right type of medication? And then that was a kind of 360 degrees conversation between different medical specialists to come up with a solution for that particular person. Um, since um, brain scanning's come in under some promoters and some of the governing bodies, then that's also kind of raised up some issues that um, but there's one fighter who, who was very kind of public about retiring with a, with a quite a large cyst on his brain. Um, Ashlyn Daly, who's going to be speaking at the Sport and Law Conference, um, she, she retired due to concussion or concussion-related um, injury and, um, and followed kind of um, medical recommendations on that. So, so it has given um, athletes um, kind of an autonomy in terms of their, their choice and... And, that, and, and that's really important in a sport where we talked about this in the run-up to the, the, the panel discussion mm-hmm. on regulating MMA uh, with the Sportsman Bar of Ireland on a quick pun mm-hmm. on the 8th of February um, in Dublin. And, and, and part of that was the fact that the, the culture of, of combat sports in particular is a macho culture, right? And, mm-hmm. and well, not even a macho culture necessarily, um, but definitely one where you don't want to show any weakness, right? Because yeah. it pertains to your competitor or to your your gym mates or looking weak in front of your coach therefore having some independent body that can say hey right this is not you this is not bringing into question your willpower or your determination right doesn't show you as weak but you can actually have that that independent assurance that this is for a justifiable medical reason you know and then it's up to you you know i think that seems like a very um healthy approach and how is this compared to um internationally how, is it, how does it fare when you start looking at the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation and, and how is it adopted? Well, uh, the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation has um, adopted um, Safe and May as a partner. So Safe and May carries out all its kind of medical clearance um, of athletes for events. Um, then in different countries worldwide, there'll be, there'll be different setups. Um, they'll have their different types of medical committees and so on. Some will be based on the Safe and May model, some will be other. But um, but certainly through the IMAF competitions, we have this, the kind of same um, minimum standards. And so, where do you see that progressing then, from the safe MMA perspective? Because obviously, you're a trustee of that organisation, and it's a charitable organisation. And as you um, rightly said, and it's the same in boxing. And you've only got to look at the yeah we talked about it offline um, about the John Jones situation about you know the different standards that are being applied and how confusing that can be. We only have to look on the doping, let alone other protocols. Um, how do you see yourselves working and operating in that environment, right? Because you are a charitable organisation with the sole objective of obviously promoting, the, as you were saying, the welfare of athletes. Whereas the commissions, whilst they have that, you know, as part of their objectives, it's not their only objective, right? They've, they've got a bit more of a balancing act yeah. to fulfil. So how do you see yourself internationally? Um, working with these because you've got a collaborative approach anyway so I'm presuming that's the, the you know indicative of the, your approach that you're taking how do you see yourself working with these organisations um, going forward to try and improve the standard internationally? 
Well, we do, do have a kind of fair bit of communication. Um, when, when you have, um, for example, on professional shows, you'll get um, fighters coming over to the UK and Ireland um, through kind of KSW, Cage Warriors, Bellator and so on. And um, often there needs to be some kind of communication with different kind of bodies or different state athletic commissions you know, about either to retrieve their medical paperwork or just kind of share information, obviously, with the um, athletes' um, permission. Um, so, so that's important, I and mean, we've had some communication with the doctors in um, the Nevada State Athletic Commission to kind of look at how the um, medical standards here compare in terms of brain scanning. So, some kind of quite technical kind of matters of you know whether we should be scanning parts of the neck or we shouldn't, and what does what do we do in the United States, and why do they change that policy there, and should we be changing it here? And so, there's those kind of academic conversations, and um, one of the doctors on the panel now is actually from the United States and he, he's got a huge amount of experience and um, Dr Wong in um, you know working with governing bodies and working with Olympic sports as well so um, we were really kind of short of um, people here who actually wanted to um, give opinion on um, the brain or neurology I think it's it's, it's, it's a real kind of minefield and, and he, he was somebody from abroad who was like look I'm, I'm really happy to yeah, you, we can see. Well, I can imagine in America people were a bit reluctant as well, given the concussion, the, the, the following the the NFL concussion litigation um, that took place, uh, uh, and then there's ongoing a whole bunch of lawsuits basically in America and elsewhere, uh, whether it's in relation to soccer and heading heading footballs, ice hockey, with the, with basically the um, what do they call it, the enforcers. And the, fo- the you know the, the fights and how the concussion protocol in, in hockey and so forth. I can imagine people are a bit reluctant to sort of put their hat in the ring sometimes to sh- to give an opinion uh, for, yeah. for for fear of uh, of liability. I'd imagine. Well, I think yeah, I think there's a lot of um, um, fear about that, and, and I guess when it comes to the brain, there's just a lot that's not actually known yet. So different radiologists and neuroradiologists and neurologists will have different opinions, but then actually people who are willing to put their name to that and stand by that. So I think. Um, it, it, it is a bit of a grey area and there's still a lot that's being learned but I think what mixed martial arts can do and what IMAF and, and what um, Safe MMA are really keen to do is to learn from other sports and IMAF's really trying to be really um, sort of preemptive in its um, approach to medical safety so um, IMAF doesn't ask um, athletes to get a brain scan in order to compete I think we will go in that direction but they, they, we do send people for CT scans if they've been knocked out or if they've had done um, any kind of um, head trauma during the match, then it's a mandatory CT scan and we're quite strict about suspensions. So, so I think it's also not just looking at uh, you know immediate risk, but also kind of looking at a long-term risk of, of um, CTE, for example. So there are ways in which we're trying to be very kind of um, proactive. Yeah, and that's good for the sport, right? This is one yeah. of the, yeah, again, this is, yeah, not to go into what will be discussed in, in, in Dublin, but, but this is one of the challenges for something like, you know, a sport like MMA, mm-hmm. which is, you know, is an aggressive sport, people get hurt, mm-hmm. and it's, but it's about managing that risk in a, you know, because you can't, right, I'm, I'm pro-regulation, mm-hmm. anyway, it's for, for, for disclosure, but, um, you know, you can't prevent people wanting to do it, Therefore, it has to be well managed, and you know the if it's well managed from your guys' perspective, obviously the sport grows in popularity because people are more are more inclined to be involved in maybe fifty fifty, and it becomes more investable. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think um, the I mean, they're two separate things, aren't they? The 
um, recognition, I guess, which is kind of an amateur sports structure, and then regulation and licensing, and other thing that we think um, both are important. Um, I mean, we're really kind of set back, and a lot of um, participants are, are really um, done wrongly by the fact that the sport isn't recognised. So, I mean, particularly when we first started up Safe MMA, we were saying to the fighters, so you just take this form along to your GP, you might need to pay for a private medical, but um, and sort of get that stamped and so on. And we thought it would be as simple as getting an HGV test or some other basic medical. And there's, just, there's so many who are just being turned away because mm-hmm. the GPs did not know what they were dealing with. They've not uh, heard of yeah. MMA, they've not heard of martial arts. If they have, they think it might be dangerous. I had the same in boxing. I had the same in boxing. You well, think, you think, amazing. yeah, which is amazing. But you think I had to source a doctor from uh, uh, who was it in the end? A boxing club or a Thai boxing? It was one of the two. It was a very specific doctor who said he was happy to do it because obviously doctors are very busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them were, were didn't, yeah, were just uh, and they're they're fully entitled to be, but weren't um, didn't want to condone um, uh, boxing. Mm-hmm. And they want to be, or they felt like they're being supportive, and therefore they wouldn't even see you to do it. And so you had to get people, or maybe just didn't know about it. But it took me, yeah, it took me a couple of months before I could get the right doctor. And I think it was at the club, I was at Colchester Amateur Boxing Club. And I think every, and this was a common practice, this is a while ago now, but this was a common practice in boxing. You'd have a boxing friendly doctor who would mm-hmm. come in and do the medicals in one go. Mm-hmm. So they'd come one evening after work. So it didn't take up a huge amount of time. You paid £10 or £15. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it was really, I was quite surprised at the time. Yeah, I mean, it does seem extraordinary when sports as well established and recognised as boxing. And I, and I guess that's the British Medical Association's position. But at the same time, it, it just makes the sports so much less safe and, and particularly people are really kind of trying. And, that, and you can imagine these kind of really desperate fighters. One, you're telling them they've got to go for a medical and they've got to pay for a medical. And and it's fight week and they're cutting weight. Mm-hmm. And, they, and some of them just feel really distressed about being turned away and actually having to explain to a doctor why they should need it and what the sport is. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's really too much to... Yeah, and again, I, I, really and again I, I felt, you know, you feel the pressure with, with, the, uh, with that type of stuff because... Uh, like with most athletes, and as we've seen with uh, the, obviously the, due to, the attention due to care now gets anyway following uh, Baroness Tony Gray Thompson's report and, and all the instances with Jeff Varnish and and um, in football where I'm safeguarding and, and a whole bunch of other sports, both domestically and internationally. Um, the athlete needs to be protected from themselves. And obviously if you've got someone, whether or not they're an amateur or, or a professional, often they've got a point to prove. It's normally with themselves. They want to compete, mm-hmm. they want to push themselves. Um, and therefore they will try and fudge a medical look at uh, rugby mm-hmm. as a with all the concussion training and education they've had to do they've made massive inroads there but you know the rugby players would always lie about are you concussed no absolutely fine <laughs> it's really difficult to get them to be honest about it and I think you know that that again I think having that ready access to you know a doctor is, is part of that because you know otherwise if it's your one shot and as mm-hmm. you said it's fight week the pressure's building you know, should I be truthful? You know, I think I'll be fine. You know, maybe I've got a bit of a niggle. Maybe, you know, I'm a bit dizzy. But maybe I'll be fine in five days' time. And then they probably won't disclose it. Whereas if they've got a, an opportunity to have regular contact points within a medical professional, perhaps they'll be, well, I like to think they'll be more in, encouraged to have an honest dialogue. Well, you'd hope so. Or at least they have the choice. Like, I guess it, it is individual choice. and, and But at least they have a a kind of framework in which they can find out independently or, or ask questions and ask confidential questions. So, so I think um, 
that that's preferable to where you have bum coaches or promoters trying to discourage fighters from getting medical advice or brush injuries under the carpet or, or giving them misinformation or some just friend tells them, oh, I think the reason you're bleeding out of it is because, you know, my friend said this and X, Y, Z. It's kind of... So so all you can do is, is give people to access to information, which I think they have a right to, and and then they, they'll have to make their own kind mm. of choices within that. Then you're doing everything you can, I think. And particularly in a, in a sport that grows in popularity, and it's one of the challenges, in a sport that grows in popularity, as we see, because there used to be more kung fu schools and a whole mm. bunch of separate schools, they still exist, uh, and um, I don't discourage people from getting involved in them at all, they're, they're great, but even then there was a, a, a different level of standard depending on which type of gym you went into, or dojo, or whatever it may be. In a growing sport, as we've seen in boxing and white-collar boxing, you suddenly get these, you know, uh, say certain gyms that pop up all over the place for people who may not be the most qualified mm-hmm. or best educated in, in, in the sport um, to necessarily instruct people or help people compete. And so, again, that becomes you know, a challenge of a, of a, of a growing um, a sport that's growing in popularity, right? So that, that again, when the, when the risks are so high, this Safe and May project seems to me is like such an important cornerstone to the, the, the successful development of the sport. I think um, yeah, I mean, definitely what you were kind of saying in the first instance that um, that the, the, yeah there is nothing to um, stop anybody setting up any kind of combat sports gym or martial arts gym or, or setting up any type of event. I mean that, that we've got quite a, a, li- a liberal approach, I guess. So, so it kind of comes back to that kind of difference between kind of recognition, which doesn't necessarily then regulate the sport and. and and um, is, is regulation important? Sh- should all, um, sh- you know, should all martial arts clubs and gyms, by law, n- you know, need to be licensed mm. or not? Because currently they, you know, they don't need to be. And mixed martial arts is no different from other sports in that respect, apart from the fact we haven't got recognition. Maybe recognition would help. But in boxing, you still have white collar boxing. You still have all different types of martial arts events. I think you mentioned Thai boxing in the conversation yeah. we had earlier. Again, so. I, th- I think that that's an interesting dialogue, um, and in terms of safe and May, I think it, it is an important cornerstone. But it hasn't had huge buy-in in the UK, in, in Ireland, due to a tragedy in two sixteen. Um, there was a huge amount of pressure and a big call for either MMA to be regulated or banned, and it's something that the clubs all came together under um, President John Kavanagh and the IMA, who are IMAS, um, national governing body there. Um, they came together and sort of collectively they said, well, actually, we're going to kind of, um, all adhere to a standard if our fighters fight on a show, that they've got to meet that medical standard. And, and they really kind of pushed through safely in the community, um, by and large, well, almost 100%, there's one show that defected. But they've kind of upheld that standard for two years. But in England, I, I think there's not that pressure. So there are a number of shows who do work with us, but there's plenty who don't. So... Um, so that's the status at the moment. Yeah, well, I hope that more, more people will adopt the standard. Um, yeah, because even in boxing, we had the death in Scotland, I think it was a year ago. Yeah. Um, you know, and the guy was, a, a little, I'm, I'm not 100% certain on the facts, so I probably shouldn't you know, say too much about it. You know, but at the time, I remember reading that it was alleged that he'd been getting headaches for a week before the fight. It was a big fight. Mm-hmm. I think it was a title fight of some sort. Um, you know, and not... You know, action wasn't taken. I'm not. Like I said I don't know the full facts of what the outcome was from the coroner, but the um, you know, it seemed like you know he 
it looked like, anyway, at least with the reports at the time, that it could have been wholly avoided um, had there been better practices in place. Um, again, you are reliant, always you're reliant on the individual, right? Because I was listening to Michael Bisbing on his podcast talking about his fight against John St. Pierre. So well, I think it was on the Joe Rogan podcast against John St. Pierre. And he was had a broke, I think he broke a rib or something before the fight and had actually taken some his own painkillers to basically mm. inject himself and thought, this is just ridiculous. Because he's got medical advice, and they were like, "We probably don't think he should be competing." It was his kind of his last fight. He wasn't sure he was going to retire, and he basically fought with I think it was a broken rib, mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, it's crazy, right? So you can have all the measures in place, but if you've got someone who wants to, well, I guess, and I guess with elite sports, I mean, that, that's the thing is, it, it's about winning, isn't it? It's not, it's not about well-being. I mean, it, 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 yeah, so it's, it's, it's different kind of motive and doing something recreationally, and, and athletes will want to do that, but but at least. If they have the information, they can choose whether mm. to fight with a broken rib or not. I guess as long as the doctor doesn't know that, that you know they, they might do that. But but you're at least giving them the opportunity to be as informed as possible. And I can you know can, on a personal level, I can, you can see why if you're if you've got that much at stake and you're at that point in your career, you might say, well, okay, well, it'll take me longer to recover, but I'll take that risk mm. as a human being. This is absolutely right now that's um because you, yeah you get competitive sport yeah and particularly these type of people as well again as you're saying at elite sport people are so used to competing with injuries there's very few yeah, there's some yeah yeah across the board there, i think kind of some a, a very successful athlete was saying that you go, can't remember a time when they weren't injured when they were competing you know they're, they're always carrying some sort of niggle yeah, or yeah. yeah and so it becomes and again it becomes normalized right because that's what you do you just push through and do it mm. um so i think it's incredible work you're doing uh, very supportive of it uh for both personal reasons seeing what i've seen on the on the cold face and been quite alarmed um you know and and for the development of the sport it seems like a very um sensible laudable thing to be doing and so I wish you loads of success with it. Thank you. Um, I'd like to see how it how it develops. I guess a final thought would be: Where do you see it going then? In the you know, from your from safe from May's perspective, what would you like to see? I'm saying, if we were to do this in two years' time, what would you like to have seen in the interim period? Well, I'd like to um, have seen us put a lot more um, resource into education and um, actually sort of getting around to more clubs and gyms and speaking directly to. Um, the coaches and the athletes yeah, about the importance of um, of um, medical safety and athlete welfare. I, th- I think that's key, and, that, and that's um, something that we've not done a lot of yet. I think having charity status will help. Hopefully, um, we can kind of f- find funding to do more in that area. So I think that's immensely important. But, but I think that uh, with, with the different governing bodies, they've all, the structure has been changing quite a lot over the last few years. So we've start. We've been quite a mobile projects in a sense that at the beginning the um, promoters who founded it well maybe this could be a governing body in the future then the UKMAF came along and we said okay we'll be your medical committee and then other governing bodies popped up regionally in Northern Ireland in Ireland and, and then we've sort of become more of a kind of services provider for those and that so, so I think the um we've really kind of followed the needs and the demands of the the sector of the community yeah. at the time, and that's that's how we want to be. Really, we we, we want to be there. Yeah, to that's quite natural. Serve the community. Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't. We're not there really to kind of impose or to try and govern. It's to provide a service. So, I'm um, hopefully we can benefit more people and 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 do do a lot more within England and um and, and Scotland. So, so um, first of all. 
best of luck with everything on that front. And I think the charitable status will undoubtedly help mm-hmm. because it will at least make people less suspicious. Yes. <laughs> I think that was been a lot of conspiracies. Yeah, well, also, you know, in sport, uh, I think uh, combat sports in particular, there's a lot of, uh, let's say, unsatisfactory practices that take place, right? And people are the nature of the informal natures of the relationships, meaning that that encourages that type of behavior. And therefore people over time get a huge level of skepticism about anyone doing anything, right? You know what I mean? You know, we really do, like you see it, even though it's a local level in amateur boxing, Mm -hmm. you see the same thing, right? There's a mistrust of people coming in, what's their motivations, are they, you know, are they actually trying to help or are they just trying to, you know, be exploitative? Are they trying to take fighters, you know, and do other things? And, um, but I think that charitable state as well, that'd be help. From a, a, a lawyer's perspective, mm-hmm. or from a, let's say, the, the law and sport community or, and, the, and the wider sports law community, if people listening to this and they would like to be involved or participate in some way or contribute, how can they? What would you say? Because I'm sure there's, a, oh, I know for a fact, we know a few of them. There's a, a like whether it's Ben or Max Shepherd or others that we know, yeah, that, um, who are, um, or Sean or Tor Beswick, who does stuff in boxing. There's a whole bunch of people who um, I know would like to contribute in some way to, to improving both mixed martial arts, but also some of the subcategories within that, so boxing or sub- or sister, sister sports, I should say, like boxing or, or kickboxing. How can they help? Actually, one thing which would be super helpful is um, the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation has positions um, being advertised for our ethics committee and for our arbitration committee at the moment. They went up yesterday and, um, yeah, we would love to hear from people with legal experience who would like to get involved. We're desperate for um, lawyers and other qualified individuals. Perfect. So what you need to do is, uh, if you could send those to me, we'll put it up. So we can help you recruit them. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the third most visited page on Law and Sport is our jobs page, and we've got obviously a recruitment division now. Uh-huh. So, so, um, but that's that's that in particular that that is one area where um, I know there's absolute lot of interest for um, very good lawyers to contribute in some capacity, particularly around those those positions that you just described. So, yeah, we're glad to help. That's quite good. Good yeah, timing. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time out. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trialing new equipment here, so thanks for your patience as well in the in the <laughs> in this in the setup. Fine, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, wish you all the best. I look forward to seeing you in Dublin. Yeah, should be awesome. It'll be really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. this is the third most visited page on Law and Sport is our jobs page, and we've got obviously a recruitment division now. Uh-huh. So, so, um, but that's that's that in particular that that is one area where um, I know there's absolute lot of interest for um, very good lawyers to contribute in some capacity, particularly around those those positions that you just described. So, yeah, we're glad to help. That's quite good. Good yeah, timing. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time out. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trialing new equipment here, so thanks for your patience as well in the in the <laughs> in this in the setup. <laughs> um, yeah, wish you all the best. I look forward to seeing you in Dublin. Yeah, should be awesome. It'll be really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all we have time for for this show. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Remember, you can follow us at Lauren Sport on Twitter. You can follow me at S P C O T T. You can subscribe to our weekly email, and you can find us at laurensport.com. If you're interested in jobs in the sector, you can go to our job sector page or you can find out the latest events that we have coming up which our latest one's going to be on the 8th of february in dublin 
and then followed by a football conference for two days in May, the 22nd and 23rd of May, and then our annual conference in September in London. Hope you have a great day and thanks for tuning in.